Amen. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 17, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 14 this morning. Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. Last time we saw God appear to Abram for only the second time in his life. And it was in order to reassure him, to confirm to him again those promises that he made to him all the way back in chapter 12 when he first called him. And we remember how God reiterated those promises later in 12 and again in 13 and again in 14, explaining a little bit more. And then God came to Abram, we remember in chapter 15, and and he formalizes those promises in that covenant ceremony where God puts himself under oath. And that's what covenant is, that God is putting himself under oath and promising again for Abram's better help to believe. And in that ceremony, God emphasized the seed, that seed of Abram in whom all the promises were tied up. It was the seed of the woman, the seed of Eve. They all knew that. Abram knows it's now coming from his own body. That was the new thing that God made clear in chapter 15. Up until that time, he thought, maybe I have to adopt someone. So God makes it clear it's from your body. And then, of course, Abram and Sarai take that knowledge and they think they can make it happen their way. And they try that whole scheme with Hagar and corrupt marriage. They should have known better. This wasn't right, no matter how much the world says it was right. And, of course, that didn't work. And brought a a certain amount of judgment in their life. And 13 years later, we picked up our text in the beginning of chapter 17 last week. And we see God again reiterating his promises. The sin of Abram and Sarai, even in corrupting their own marriage, did not cause God to cast them off. It brought difficulties in their life. But they knew God by faith, by grace. And God forgave their sins. And so he comes to Abram again in the first eight verses. We looked at that last time. And there God reiterates and emphasizes that promise that Abram will be the father of many nations. And we finally get his name changed. He's now Abraham in Genesis 1 to 8. The father of many nations. That's made clear. And it was Goyim, foreigners, Gentiles, not your clan, not your tribe, not your people. This was something supernatural. And in our text, we're going to see God give now a sacrament, a sacrament by which God again would assure Abram, and that's the purpose of sacraments, that he would assure Abram, Abraham now of his word of promise that God will indeed be his God and will gather to him people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And we'll see that in this Text that it even begins to happen in this text with the giving of the sacrament of circumcision. And this is a really important text because it's the first time God has done something like this. And we've seen a lot of firsts in Genesis. But also throughout the history of the church, not just in Israel, the Old Testament church, and I like to call it that, or in the New Testament church, but throughout the history of God's people, Sacraments which are given as a help to faith, which are given for our unity, for our uh, helping one another, have unfortunately been used by Satan, no doubt, to destroy, to corrupt, to divide, to weaken our faith. The very thing God gave to strengthen our faith, the means to strengthen it, Satan has used for the opposite. But by God's grace, 
we can be strengthened in our faith through the sacraments. And so let's pray to God that he would do that this morning and give us the right understanding of his word. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would understand it rightly. I pray that I wouldn't add anything to it, that we wouldn't take away anything from it, but that you, by this text, would strengthen our faith, not in ourselves, not in the sacraments, but in Jesus, that we would believe more in Jesus for the very purpose that you gave these things is to that end. So give it to us, Lord. Grant what you have commanded, what you have desired and willed, and let us be drawn closer to him through the signs and the seals that you have given. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse nine. This is God's holy word. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. May the Lord establish his word this morning. Amen. I want you to notice, first of all, the sign and the thing signified. The sign and the thing signified. We're going to really draw heavily on the Reformed tradition this morning that so rescued the sacraments uh, from what Martin Luther called the Babylonian captivity of the church. Look in verse 9. We see here that covenant is sovereignly imposed from God to man. That's why it's likened to that suzerain vassal treaty. The suzerain is the Lord. The vassal is the servant. The suzerain declared, this is our relationship. This is what it's going to be. This is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And that's what God does in covenant with Abram. He doesn't ask Abram's opinion. This isn't a mutual compromise agreement, you know, maybe like with Jacob and Laban or even like in marriage where two people pledge certain things and so forth. This is God sovereignly saying, this is the way it will be. And that's really important because with God's authoritative declaration, everything God says is significant and is something that we need. And so I just want you to notice that God is declaring this covenant. And remember, for substance, we are in the exact same covenant. It's the covenant of grace that Abraham is in. Now, circumstances will change, and there's going to be continuity, and there's going to be discontinuity. There are some things that applied only to Abraham's life. We know that. The promise of descendants, like the stars, like the sand on the seashore, not every believer gets that promise, right? The promise of land. God's giving you a certain tract of land. We don't get that particular promise. But the spiritual significance, that God is our reward, that God is our inheritance, that we are righteous in his sight by faith, 
That is the essence of the covenant. That is the eternal aspect, and that hasn't changed. That is the same covenant that Abram is in, in other words, is the one that we are in. And we get particularly more fullness. We get more unfolding, more understanding. Paul likened it to, in Galatians chapter 4, a child in his father's house being underage. And that was the Old Testament. They were the heirs of everything their father had, but they were underage. They were, they were no better than a slave in the house. They had to listen to slaves and servants and tutors. And in those days, tutors were the slaves. That's who would teach your kids. You wouldn't teach your kids. Your servant would. That was a lowly thing, a teacher. And so this is something that God uh, uh, says his people were like. They were like these children in a house being tutored by servants and slaves. Now in the New Testament, same house, same promises, but now we've come of age. Now we have actually, or we, we actually have our heir and our rights and our authority, and we can now be in the house, not under slaves but immediately sons and daughters with rights and privileges that Israel didn't have, right? Spiritually, we know what that is. Israel had to go to a temple. They had to go through priests, right? They had to have animal sacrifices. We can each one go into the throne room of grace. Each one without a priest, without an animal, without a temple, right? So all kinds of things like that that we have. But it's the same covenant that God is our God and that we are his people. Now, in Scripture here, for the first time, we get what we call a sacrament. And that's what circumcision was. Circumcision is a sacrament. The word sacrament is the Latin translation of the Greek word mysterion. It's most often that. It's, sometimes it can be a few other things. But sacramentum is what you find in the Latin under, or translation of the Scriptures. And that's where we get the word sacrament from. It's an it's a English uh, bringing in of this Latin word. And again, it's a translation of the Greek scriptural word, musterion. Musterion, you can hear mystery, right? Mystery. Sometimes the sacraments are called the mysteries of God or God's mysteries. And all it means there is that it's a secret counsel from God that's beyond the natural understanding, right? If God wouldn't reveal the significance of cutting off a part of the foreskin, we would have no idea what that meant. Right? Or the same thing with putting some water on a baby's head. We would have no idea if God didn't reveal that he means something by that sign. And so that's why they're called mysteries. Apart from the word, apart from the revelation of the word, we would have no idea. What does eating one piece of bread and drinking one sip of a cup do? Nothing apart from God's word that goes with the sacrament. Okay, And so we have the sign... And this thing signified, in fact, the Westminster Larger Catechism asked the question, question 163, what are the parts of a sacrament? Answer, the parts of a sacrament are two. The one, an outward and sensible sign, sign that your senses can see, hear, touch. An outward and sensible sign, that's the one part. Used according to Christ's own appointment. We just can't do it any way we want. We have to say the words that Jesus said. It has to be an ordained minister and so forth. Um, the other, the second part, is an inward and spiritual grace thereby signified. All right? So the outward signifies an inward spiritual grace that we can't do, that God has to do. So there is the sign whether it's water baptism, whether it's the Lord's Supper, whether it's circumcision, and then there's the thing 
signified the reality, right? That God is our God, that God has cut away our sins, that God has imputed righteousness to us. I'm going to show you by the end of the sermon that the thing signified in circumcision is the righteousness of faith. That's what's signified. That's the inner reality that God alone can do. We can put water on the head, but we can't do the inward. Grace comes from God. The sign and the thing signified, all right? And we saw in our confessional reading, I want you to go back and look at your confession of faith. In the first two readings that I gave you, do you see under what is a sacrament? Christ and the benefits, it's a sign right here, holy ordinance, wherein by sensible signs, signs you can see here, touch, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and what? Applied to believers. You have to believe to benefit from the sacraments. If you don't believe, as Luther and Calvin would both say, all you get is water. If you don't believe, as Luther and Calvin would both say, and especially Luther, think about it, because Lutherans, or Luther believed that in some sense the bread and the wine was the body and blood. But I can show you in Luther's writings that Luther himself says that the unbeliever receives only bread and only wine. He does not receive the body and blood that can only be received by faith. Even Luther's view of the supper included that. But what I want you to notice, notice in the second reading that I gave you from Shorter Catechism 91. How do the sacraments become effectual means of salvation? Not from any virtue in them. That water doesn't do it. Eating and drinking doesn't do it. Not from him who doth administer them. Not from me or Rick or any other minister. I don't have some magic power. But what? The blessing of Christ and the working of his spirit in them, and this is the key, that by faith receive them. I'm going to show you that unless you believe the baptism does nothing for you. Unless you believe the Lord's Supper does nothing for you. This is a basic question we ask every minister. How do we benefit from the sacraments in their exams? How do Because only ministers get examined in the sacraments. How do we benefit from the sacraments? By faith. If they don't say by faith, they're not going to pass. Not in the PCA and not in NAPARC. They have to say by faith. There's no other way to benefit from the sacraments than by faith. The confession of faith shares the view of Luther and Calvin that unbelievers receive only the outward. Paragraph 29, or I'm sorry, chapter 29, paragraph 8. Although ignorant and wicked men receive the outward elements in the sacrament, yet they receive not the thing signified thereby. You don't get the inward if you don't believe. You have to believe in order to get the inward grace. And repeatedly, and I wanted you to see this in the scripture reading, both the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about circumcision as a circumcision on the flesh, which was important for certain things. They had the oracles of God. It marked you as a member of the church. But then there was the circumcision of the heart. And only God could do that. Over and over again, three times at least, the Old Testament calls for the circumcision of the heart. and even says God will circumcise the heart. And God has to do it. And the New Testament, as we read in Romans, it's the inward circumcision by the Spirit that matters. And that's true for baptism or any sacrament. You have to have the thing signified. And you can only get that 
by faith. And so secondly, I want you to notice the sacramental union. I want you to notice the sacramental union. I asked that question thirdly in your scripture reading. And this is a crucial, this, uh, crucial concept in the Reformed faith, the sacramental union. You see the answer that the confession gives as to what the sacramental union is. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. This is crucial to Reformed theology. Whence it comes to pass that by the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. Okay? That means I can call the sign as if it was the thing signified. I can say that about the sign. I can say certain things that only the thing signified actually does. So, for example, in Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So baptism puts on Christ, right? Baptism unites you to Christ. That's what the modern-day sacramentalists will tell you. It does not unite you to Christ. The reality that baptism points to is union with Christ. But you're only united to Christ by faith. There's no other way to be united to Christ. Baptism points to it. Baptism is a sign of it. But you are not united to Christ by water on your head. You're united to Christ when you believe. And baptism says if you believe, you're clean. I promise that. Here's the seal. This is from God because God has authorized it. And so that's what we read about. We can see this in verse after verse after verse. Romans 6, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Oh, there it is. If I have baptism, I'm dead to sin, I have salvation. No, that's saying the reality of the sacrament. If you have the reality, if you were baptized inwardly, in addition to being baptized outwardly, if the sign really was real because you did what it said and believed, then yes, You died with Christ and you will live with him. We could do this for verse after verse after verse. Acts 22, 16. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism washes away sins. No. But if you actually do what the sign says and believe in Jesus' death, then it's washing away your sins because it's telling you that if you believe, you're clean. That's what the sign is saying. But we can attribute the reality to the sign because God has linked the word to the sign. The word is linked to the sign. That's the sacramental union. We can speak of the one as the other. The same thing is true of what's been called the communicatio idiomatum. Okay? I'm not a good Latin guy. Maybe I made that wrong. But the communicatio idiomatum, I'll tell you what it means in English, is the communication of attributes. Right? This is because Jesus Christ is God and man in a hypostatic union that can't be divided, can't be mixed, can't be confused, but can't be separated, can't be divided. In fact, his natures are so closely together in one person that we can speak of the one nature as if it were the other. That's the communicatio idiomatum. That we can say things like this, for example, in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, shepherd the church of God which God purchased with his own blood. God doesn't have blood. Clearly in that verse, God is purchasing the church with his blood. The his refers to God. The text is saying God has blood. We must be like the Mormons and believe God has a body, right? 
No. But it's saying that the nature of Christ is so close, his human and divine one person, that I can say God died on the cross, even though the human nature of Jesus is all that died, and the second person of the Trinity never died. But that second person of the Trinity was always in union with the human nature of Christ, even when it was dead. So we can say God shed his blood. That's the communicatio idiomatum. And the same thing's true of the sacraments. So we can say like Peter does, baptism now saves you. But Peter says, not by the washing of the flesh, but by the testimony of a good conscience towards God, because you're believing what the sign says. So you have a good conscience, because Jesus' blood has washed you clean. So you can say, baptism saved me, it pointed me to Jesus, and I went to Jesus. That minister saved me, pointed me to Jesus, I went to Jesus. That gospel tract saved me, he pointed me to Jesus, and I went to Jesus. That's how the sacraments save you. They tell you believe. And that's the sacramental union. Now, where do we see that in our text? Verse 10. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Did you hear that? Let's isolate that verse from the rest of scripture, something you should never do. Okay. Just to get the wrong idea for a second, because we're going to correct it. Sacrament, this, what is circumcision called in this text? Clearly in this one verse. It is the covenant. This is my covenant circumcision. Now covenant, the covenant is what? God's oath to save Abraham and give him eternal life. So this is my covenant. If you circumcise yourself, your kids, you save them. This is salvation by circumcision. Clearly. If we isolate the verse, pretend like no other scriptures exist, that verse is saying circumcision is the covenant. Now, is that what God's communicating to Abram? Oh, I got to circumcise myself and I'll have eternal life. Circumcise my boys and they'll, they'll have eternal life. No, we know that. How do we know that? How do we know that even at this point in time? How do we know without reading anything further in scripture, just from what we've read in the first 17 chapters, how do we know for certain God does not mean that circumcision is the covenant? Because God's already said to Abraham in chapter 15 that when Abraham believed, God imputed it to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith resulted in him being accounted righteous. He's righteous, he's saved. It wasn't circumcision that did that. He is righteous by faith alone. And now, at 99 years old, years later, God's going to give him a sign. All right? And that's what circumcision is. Verse 11. So verse 10, this is my covenant, circumcision. Verse 11, okay, here's what I mean. Let me spell it out for you. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant. It's not the covenant itself. It can be called that because of the sacramental union, because I'm linking it to the word of salvation. So I can say it's the covenant because if you believe what that picture is saying, you are saved. And so I'll call it the covenant in one verse, but when I'm really speaking exactly, I'm going to tell you it's actually the sign of the covenant. Do you see that in verse 11? Right here is the first example of the Protestant understanding and principle of the sacramental union. That you can say of the sign what is really strictly only true of the reality. 
Circumcision is not the covenant. Faith in Christ is. But circumcision is saying that. It's saying if you believe you're acceptable to me. Because I am putting this sign upon you. So this is the sacramental union. John Calvin says this, quote, The end and use of sacraments is to help, promote, and confirm faith. That's why we have sacraments. The end and use of sacraments is to help, promote, and confirm faith. As soon as the sign itself meets our eyes, Calvin says, the word ought to sound in our ears. It's because the sign is linked to the word. You are mine. I'm your God. You'll be my people. Here's a sign to authenticate that, to testify to that. It's the word that he believes. Luther says the same thing with, circum, or with uh, the Lord's Supper. Unless we believe the word, my body and my blood shed for you, unless we believe that, we're not getting anything from the supper, according to Luther. And so this is the important thing. Calvin actually says covenants are for the purpose of the edification of faith and even more sacraments are the purpose for uh, the edification of faith. If we don't have faith, the sacrament and the covenant itself does us no good. So thirdly, I want you to notice perpetuity and change. I want you to notice perpetuity and change. One of the difficult things here, and it's the error that every form of sacramentalism always makes. It's that the sacraments, whether it's circumcision in the Old Testament, whether it's the Lord's Supper, whether it's baptism, give a different kind or some extra grace that you can't get in the word. As soon as you go down that path, you are no longer in the Protestant camp. You are a sacramentalist. As soon as you think the word is not sufficient, but you've got to also have something that only baptism or the Lord's Supper can bring. Do you understand what I'm saying? We believe in the gospel, we're saved. The sacraments come alongside and say, yes, if you believe you're saved. But if I now say I believe the gospel, but I need to have baptism to have this other kind of grace, or I need to have the Lord's Supper to have this other kind of grace, now I've distorted the gospel. And I've said the gospel isn't sufficient. And I've made the sacraments necessary for salvation. And I am now a sacramentalist. That's the error they make. Some extra grace, some different kind of grace that you can't get from the gospel. Everything you need for salvation is in the word. The sacraments are a help to, to help you trust the word, right? And so this is the thing that we have to understand here. It's not true, as is said in the, in the doctrine of Pater communion it's not true that unless our children come to the table, they're not feeding on Christ. You feed on Christ by faith. You feed on Christ by faith. Do you believe then you're feeding on Christ? That's what the sacrament of the Lord's Supper points you to. But you're only eating bread and you're eating and you're drinking uh, the cup with your body. It's believing that picture and you believe the word that this is for me, for my sins. Now I feed on Christ by faith. But I don't have to take the Lord's Supper to get that grace. I have to believe to get it. All right? And so this is where, again, sacramentalism will say you have to have the sacrament or you're missing out on something. No, the gospel is all you need. The sacraments help you to believe the gospel, all right? The temporalness of this sign, you can see it in many ways, right? It's bloody. It's a cutting off of the flesh. We don't have that anymore. It's 
think of it, it's actually cutting the member that emits the seed in whom the promise of salvation is. So what's that telling Abram? And what's that telling the Jews? That your very hope for salvation is unclean. And you have to be bloody there. You have to be cut there. Calvin calls it a sign of, he calls circumcision a sign of repentance. It told the Jews that everything they could do was a sinner. Even giving the seed of salvation, somehow God was going to have to purify that. They didn't understand that. We know it's the second person of the Trinity who's without sin. But if it would have just been a child of the flesh of Abraham, he would have never been able to save. And so circumcision was telling them that your seed, the very seed of promise, Abraham, needs to pass through blood. Or it won't be able to do anything. It was a sign, again, of humility, a sign of humbling. This is one of the reasons why also it was given only to men, because Israel's hope now will come through the seed of Abraham. But the sign was for both men and women. Both men and women needed the sign. Both men and women had the proper use of the sign. The sign was only put on the men. All right, Calvin does a very good job of explaining this. I wish I could read a couple of paragraphs of him on this, but I'm just going to give you a few quotes. Calvin points out that prior to the gospel, I'm sorry, that the prior gospel promise, which is what circumcision was, uh, which is what the Old Testament is, the prior gospel promise exhibited in circumcision was alike to men and to women, according to Calvin. Well, of course, women need a help to believe just as much as men. And women, Calvin says, are included in the sign. Here's another quote. As it is certain that females as well as males had need of confirmation. That's what sacraments do. They confirm us in believing. It is hence evident that the symbol was ordained for both sexes. That's what Calvin says. Because the females too were to hope in the seed of Abraham. And by seeing these, all the men of Abraham have to get circumcised, they too see that they have to trust in God's grace and not in their works. Calvin calls females partakers of the same sign as associates. He says that the sign was given to men on condition of being engraven upon them with their females, associates of them in the same promise and in the same sign. So that's one of the reasons why when Christ comes, all that goes away, right? The bloodiness of it, this, the, 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 the cutting of the flesh. And by the way, this is not something that God invented or Israel invented. There's plenty of evidence that many Near Eastern peoples practice circumcision, all right? Not for the reason Israel does. God gives it a religious significance. In other people, groups, in and around Israel. We know this from, the, from many records. It was done for social reasons. So a man would enter into a boy, would become a man, and he would get circumcised in some kind of ceremony, and that would say he's a man. And, or a man would get married, and he would get circumcised to say he's joining this family, and that was part of a covenant ceremony. And so these people groups had that. In fact, it's interesting. If you, if you look in the Bible and all the different wars that Israel has with different peoples, they only call the Philistines uncircumcised. They don't say that about the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites because they were all circumcised for different reasons. But only the Philistines, only Goliath is that uncircumcised Philistines. We know the Philistines didn't do it. As far as we can tell, the Babylonians didn't do it, which come in later, and the Assyrians. But all the other Near Eastern peoples did. So God takes this convention that Abraham understood, and he gives it a religious significance. That's the exact same thing God did with covenant earlier. Covenant was an understood ceremony between kings and servants. God takes that, and he enters into this with Abraham. Again, to assure Abraham 
of his promises. So God's taking things that Abraham knows and understands just like he does things in our lives and he gives them religious significance and that really is what the sacrament is. And so all of these temporal things pass away because it's not one-to-one. We get girls now get the sign just as much as men because the Savior has come. Nobody has to put a bloody cutting of themselves because Jesus has been cut for us and he's bled for us. So now we get the washing, right? Both boys and girls. And it's not on eight days anymore because that reason passed away. Many differences and many differences between Passover and the Lord's Supper. I didn't give the questions and answers from our catechism, but if you would look at the larger catechism and see the preparation before the Lord's Supper, the after the Lord's Supper, what you're supposed to do, and it requires, in addition to faith, discernment and self-examination, a critical examination that the human mind is simply not able to do at a young age, right? The classical model of education, you have grammar for very little kids because they can do that. They can't do logic. They can't do that until about middle school. Nobody does higher math until, you know, algebra until like seventh grade or something. You, you can't. The brain isn't developed enough to do that kind of critical self-examination. And that's why in churches around the world, it's about 12 years of age when we admit children to the, to the table. Just like Jesus went to the temple at 12. And in Jewish tradition, you became a son of the law at 12. Now you're able to critically think and examine yourself and discern. And so there's many differences between the Old Testament and the New. We can't bring them in one-to-one. Yes, children ate of the Passover. It was supper time. If they didn't eat, they went hungry. Paul says, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, if you're hungry, eat at home. This isn't mealtime. This is a ceremonial one bite of bread, a ceremonial one sip of a cup. Supper comes earlier. That's everybody. And when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he didn't do it in a home. With children, He did it in an upper room with only his adult disciples present. These are significant things. This is what the Reformed faith has always understood. We don't want to equate these things. Yes, there's, there's continuity, but there's discontinuity. And if we lose that, we lose the help of believing in the gospel. So fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the fulfillment of the sign. I want you to notice for the f- fulfillment of the sign. Oh, I should probably say this. The last verse, we have this threat, right, of being cut off. That's because when God gives his sacraments, he is giving something significant. He's giving a ceremony by which he is authenticating and attesting to us. It's, in a sense, another oath from God. I promise I will cleanse you, put this water on your head, believe me. Just as this water is on your head, my spirit will do it in your heart if you believe, right? And so we have this testimony from God. So that's why they're serious. We don't mess around with them. We don't, you know, think they're optional. But what we can't do, and sometimes we Presbyterians do this, what we can't do is take a verse like 14 and, and tell our Baptist brothers and sisters, you see, you better baptize your children. Look what verse 14 says. That's not what it's talking about. All right? It really isn't. Or, or the passage with, with Zipporah, you know, circumcising the kids, or Moses is going to be killed. It's interesting that it was Moses. But... That's not what's happening here. Calvin says that. This threat is not to those who honestly and sincerely believe the Bible says that the timing is different. And that's all we're talking about. We understand the sacrament the same. It's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It points us to what faith will really give us. But we disagree on when the the sign should be put on. That's not the same thing with paedo communion. 
the very understanding of communion is different. That it gives something that it can't, that faith can't give. That's different. That's a serious error. That's why all the Reformed churches reject that. And you won't find any Reformed paedo-communion churches. You won't find any evangelical paedo-communion churches. There's all kinds of Reformed Baptist churches and all kinds of evangelical Baptist churches because that's a minor issue, timing. But what we can't do here is say, this threat is against that position. As Calvin says, God threatens the punishment only to those who despise and reject the grace. Not to those who sincerely are believing in grace alone, but think the sign comes a little bit later. That's not despising, that's not rejecting. Think of it, otherwise, God would be limiting his power to the external sign, right? And we'd have to do these emergency baptisms, as you see. We don't do emergency baptisms. Baptism doesn't give anything to a kid. Faith is what gives it to them, right? We put the sign on them before they believe. Why? Because what's God telling Abram to do? Put the sign on them before they believe. So I want you to notice again, the sacrament here is the sign and seal of of the righteousness by faith. This is my last point. Where do we see this sign and seal language? Sometimes, you know, we'll have people criticize the Westminster Confession or the Reformed tradition. You're not going by the Bible, You know, where do you get this sign and seal language? Actually, it is in the Bible. And actually, we are a confessional church, and so we don't apologize for saying we believe that confession gets the Bible right. We don't put it on the level of the Bible. We certainly don't put it above the Bible. The Bible is first, but we say to everybody, here's what we believe the Bible teaches. And if you're going to be a member of this church in good conscience, you need to take a vow to this. And if you can't do that, then you need to go somewhere else if you're an honest person. That's what we believe. Every church has a confession, by the way, every church whether they say it or not. They can say Bible alone all they want. Ask them what they believe about baptism. There's their confession. Ask them what they believe about the second coming. Ask them what they believe about speaking in tongues. Everybody has a confession. They just don't write it down. We have ours written down in the 1640s. All right, we believe they got it right. But we don't put it on the level of scripture. But I want you to notice in Romans chapter four, We say, verse 9, we say that faith was accounted to Abram for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Listen, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So circumcision had nothing to do with Abram's righteousness, which is his salvation. And, verse 11, he received, here it is, the sign of circumcision, a seal. Sign, seal. A seal of the righteousness of the faith, listen, which he already had. Which he had while uncircumcised. He already had the righteousness of faith. It comes as as a seal saying, yes, that faith is righteousness. Or not faith itself, but by faith you get the righteousness of Christ. That seal is circumcision on top of the fact that he's already righteous. Right, so a sign of seal, that's Romans 4, 11. He received a sign, the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them. You know one of the cool things about this section of scripture, besides that it's the word of God and it shows us Christ? Verses 13 or 12 and 13. God just said to Abraham, you're gonna be a father of many nations, and now he commands him to circumcise every foreigner that he's bought, verse 12. And he repeats it, because I think it was so astonishing that he had to repeat it. Every foreigner circumcised. God said you'll be a father of many nations, and immediately many nations are getting the sign of the covenant. I mean, isn't that awesome? 
that immediately, and Abram had 318 male servants in his house that were able to fight war. How many other men did he have? There was a lot of circumcisions that day. And they were foreigners. Beloved, this was never an ethnic thing. I hate it when people do that and distort the scriptures. Well, you know that the Jews believed that it was only you know, by Jewishness that you're saved. No, they didn't. You had to have the faith of Abraham. And everybody in Abraham's house, whether they were Jewish or not, got the sign. So the sign and therefore the seal and the promise that the sign signified went to everyone. And if those servants believed, they were righteous by faith, right? And so we put the sign on our children because God calls Abram to do that. We believe that that hasn't changed, but it's still by faith that they benefit from it. And so we teach them at a very young age, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and your heart will be washed by the Holy Spirit. Even as the body, your body was washed by water. Sometimes it's said, well, when, the, when baptism or the supper is talked about, it's always the outward. No, it's not. Mark chapter one, verse eight. John the Baptist, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's not an outward baptism. That's not a water baptism. That's the inward reality. So the sign and the seal. And the, the awesome thing about this sign, think of it, is that it is fulfilled in Christ. As Abram had to cut off a part of his flesh, otherwise he was cut off. So God sent his son. And the Bible actually uses the language. He was cut off. He was cut off for us. He took the curse that was taken in sign by Abram. Someday, somehow, there's gotta be a sacrifice that's gonna enable you to actually dwell in my presence. I've already accounted you righteous by faith, but I haven't shown you how that righteousness will come. We know how it came. There was one who came, who took on himself, yes, he had to do all these signs and seals, but he fulfilled them. He fulfilled them so we don't have to have that bloody sign anymore. We get the washing with water, which is a signification of what the Spirit does in your heart when you believe. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for these signs and seals. I pray, Lord God, that we would make a right use of them to point us to Jesus. We don't believe in them when we say we have to believe. We believe in the gospel that they point to. They're a picture that says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and his body and blood have paid for your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit has washed away your sin and given you new life. Believe in me. God is assuring us. We thank you, God, that you assure us, not just in your word, but you even give us pictures that are linked to your word to help us because we are so weak of faith. Help us, Lord God, to not neglect those helps, to not distort those helps, to, but to make a right use of them and to give you thanks in them. For you are the God of our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name.